Joshua chapter number 9. I want to read a passage of Scripture to you that details the period of, of Israel's history in which they were tasked with conquering the land of Canaan. An event that takes place, a mistake that's made, and what we can learn from it in the Word of God. Joshua chapter 9. Let's begin reading in verse number 1. Joshua chapter 9, verse number 1. The Bible says, And it came to pass, when all the kings which were on this side Jordan, in the hills and in the valleys, and in all the coasts of the great sea over against Lebanon, the Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite heard thereof, that they gathered themselves together to fight with Joshua and with Israel with one accord. And when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they did work wilily and went and made as if they had been ambassadors and took old sacks upon their asses and wine bottles, old and rent and bound up, and old shoes and clouded upon their feet and old garments upon them, and all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. They went to Joshua under the camp at Gilgal and said unto him and to the men of Israel, We be come from a far country. Now, therefore, make ye a league with us. And the men of Israel said unto the Hivites, Peradventure ye dwell among us, and how shall we make a league with you? In other words, how do we know you're not our neighbors? And they said unto Joshua, We are thy servants. Joshua said unto them, Who are ye, and from whence come ye? And they said unto him, From a very far country, Thy servants are come because of the name of the Lord thy God. For we have heard the fame of him and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites that were beyond Jordan, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, which was at Ashtaroth. Wherefore our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spake to us, saying, Take victuals with you for the journey, and go to meet them, and say unto them, We are your servants, therefore now make ye a league with us. This our bread we took hot for our provision out of our houses on the day we came forth to go unto you. But now, behold, it is dry and it is moldy. And these bottles of wine which we filled were new, and behold, they be rent. And these are garments and our shoes are become old by reason of the very long journey. And the men took of their victuals and asked not counsel at the mouth of the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a league with them to let them live. And the princes of the congregation swear unto them. And it came to pass at the end of three days, after they had made a league with them, that they heard that they were their neighbors, and that they dwelt among them. And the children of Israel journeyed and came unto their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, and Kephira, and Beeroth, and kerjath Jerem. And the children of Israel smote them not, because the princes of the congregation had sworn unto them by the Lord God of Israel, and all the congregation murmured against the princes. But all the princes said unto all the congregation, We have sworn unto them by the Lord God of Israel. Now, therefore, we may not touch them. This we will do to them. We will even let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swear unto them. And the princes said unto them, Let them live, but let them be hewers of wood and drawers of water unto all the congregation, as the princes had promised them. Joshua called for them, and he spake unto them, saying, Wherefore have ye beguiled us, saying, We are very far from you when ye dwell among us. Now, therefore, ye are cursed, and there shall none of you be freed from being bondmen, and hewers of wood, and drawers of water for the house of my God. We'll stop there and pray. Lord, I love you this morning. Thank you for the privilege it is to be in this place. 
I pray that each and every heart would be touched by the preached word of God today. Lord, that's just the sort of power that your word has, that you can speak to each heart individually. Lord, you know who we are and where we're at in our lives and what we're dealing with. Lord, you can minister your truth and your word to us, but it'll require us to be honest with you and sincere and for us to be obedient unto your word as it's given to us. Lord, I don't know the heart's condition of any person in this room, but you do. And so I trust them to you and ask that you, Lord, would speak to their hearts. If there's any that needs to be saved, they are lost, they're undone, they've never been born again. I pray that they would see that great need, Lord, greater than any other need they have in their life. And I pray they'd come to know to Jesus Christ this morning. Lord, I pray that you would encourage those that are discouraged and abase the haughty. But Lord, that in all things your will would be done and that we'd be found in perfect obedience unto you. Lord, I love you. I trust you. Thank you for being a precious God. Thank you for being my heavenly Father. Thank you for being my Savior and my God. Lord, I love you. And I commit it all to your care. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. The text that we've read this morning details for us a great deception and lie that was played upon Joshua, the leader of the children of Israel. The Gibeonites, and if you study through the Bible, you'll find that Gibeah, the land of Gibeah, or the city of Gibeon, was actually to be part of the inheritance of the children of Benjamin. It was part of the land that God had said that the Israelites would conquer. And as they are going on this war march through the land of Canaan, the people around them hear of what God has done and the great overthrow of Jericho, that great and walled city, and how he slew the city of Ai. And many of them band together, confederate, to try to keep and stay the children of Israel in their march. But the Gibeonites take a different tack. They decide that the best thing that they can do, having no ability to withstand their military might and the power of their God, is maybe they can deceive the children of Israel into making a covenant or a league with them, a political alliance with them, and then once that league has been made, they will not slay them. We find that, in fact, it happens exactly as they planned. It was a plan well executed. For Joshua, instead of seeking the Lord, he instead makes this league with them and allows them to live. Joshua's trusting and pardoning the Gibeonites was both a sin and a mistake. He had been commanded to vanquish all of those peoples of that land. It's interesting, and some people will say, they'll look at it and say, well, God's not a very merciful God because he allowed the Israelites to destroy those people. But did you know when God sent his own precious people, Israel, into Egypt in slavery, the reason was because the sins of the Amorites were not yet full. God allowed Israel to be slaves for 450 years so that he could give a legitimate opportunity for these Gentiles to believe and to turn unto him. That's how merciful our God is. They were not left without opportunity. But they had filled up their sins. They had trespassed and transgressed and they were refusing God. And so God permitted them to be destroyed. And Joshua was tasked with leading Israel's army in this campaign and in this endeavor. But here in our passage, he does not act as a military leader. Rather, he acts like a diplomat. And he allows himself to be deceived into uh, going into this league with them. His trusting and pardoning of them was not only a mistake, it was a sin, it was a transgression. But you know, when I read this passage, I notice that just as with our sins and mistakes, there are three realities present in this passage. And I want to say this very clearly. Not every mistake is a sin, but every sin is a mistake. 
It's a wrong thing that we've done. It's something we'll regret. It is a misstep. And I don't mean to soften the idea of what sin is. It is a willful transgression of God's Word. But I'm just saying this. Usually, whenever you make a mistake and it turns out good, you don't call it a mistake. Amen? You call it charisma. But every sin that we commit, it is a mistake. It is a misstep. I don't mean it's inadvertent, but I mean it will bring ill into our lives. And just as with our sins and mistakes, there are three realities that are present in this passage. I want you to notice them with me. Look at verse 14. The Bible says this, The men took of their victuals. Now, what exactly does that mean? Is it that they were hungry and ate some of the dry and moldy bread? Is it that they were thirsty and tried to squeeze from those rent wineskins some drop of, of nourishment? No, what it means is they had brought these things as proof that they were from a far country. And rather than them scrutinizing and criticizing, and hey, listen, by the way, we should not be critical in our attitude, but we should be critical thinkers. We should analyze things. We should scrutinize things. And rather than doing that, instead of rejecting their truth or their proof, the Bible says they took their proof. I want you to notice, number one, the lie that they believed. Can I tell you this? Every time that we engage in sin, we have bought the devil's lies. We have taken him at his word while rejecting God at his word. And I'm not meaning to imply that we are some uh, innocent and, and, and knowledgeless babe in the woods that's too naive to know better. But I am saying this, we can willfully buy into the lies of Satan. And whenever you sin, you have bought his lie. Every time we sin, we believed it won't hurt us when it will hurt us. Every time we have sinned, we believe that we have a right to it when we don't have a right to it. Every time that we have sinned, we believe that there is some excuse when there is no excuse. And here in this passage, it all begins when they believe a lie that they should have known better. Listen, hey, child of God, we ought to know better. And I understand we're flesh and bone. I understand the infirmity of our condition. I understand that our flesh is rotten and weak and and is feeble. But listen, we live in a day where we have more truth than any generation, in any time in history past. We ought to know better than to believe the devil's lies. I see the lie that they believe. But then I want you to notice the next phrase. The Bible says the men took of their victuals. And ask not counsel at the mouth of the Lord. Notice not only the lie they believed, but notice the Lord they ignored. Now, somebody will say, well, preacher, I'm not that proud of a person. Sometimes I'm gullible. And listen, I mean, I'm thankful for gullible people. Some of us wouldn't get by were it not for gullible people. Somebody say amen. Makes life a lot easier sometimes. But the reality, <laughs> that's a reality check is what that is, Fred. We wouldn't have a cut anyway. It doesn't matter. Somebody will say, well, preacher, you know, I'm gullible. I, I, I make mistakes. I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. And that may be true. Some are more dull than others. But can I say this as a child of God? You have every resource you need. When you go to take a step astray, you have a God you can go to. When you're faced with the matters, the decisions, the issues of life, you have a God that you can go to. And the fact is, we can blame them for being misguided. We can blame them for being misled. And certainly they bear some blame for that. But that was not the crucial problem. The problem was not just that they believed the lie, but they ignored the Lord that could have warned them away from that lie. Every time you and I that we've sinned, not only have we believed the devil's word, but we have rejected God's word. Every time that we've involved ourselves with sin, we have accepted a false reality and false promises from Satan, but likewise we have rejected the truth of God and His warning concerning it. When I read this passage, I 
Notice the lie they believed in the Lord they ignored. But then look at verse 15. The Bible says this, Joshua made peace with them and made a league with them to let them live. And the princes of the congregation swear unto them. In other words, they entered a covenant with them. They made a promise to them. They entered an alliance with them. They would later on say this very thing in verse 20. They said, this will we do to them. We will even let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swear unto them. In other words, because of Joshua's mistake, they were now stuck with the Gibeonites. They couldn't get rid of them lest they denied the oath they had made to the Lord. But they could not assimilate them into their culture lest they trespass the commandment of God. Now they're what we would say between a rock and a hard place. They're stuck with the Gibeonites. They couldn't vanquish them, but in our text we learn they could still have victory over them. Now here's where I want to give you the substance of my message. You know, this reminds me of the mistakes that we make in our past. Here's the reality. We're stuck with them. There's things I've done I wish I could undo, but I cannot undo them. There's things I've seen that I wish I could unsee, but I can't unsee them. Things that I've said, hey, somebody help me. Things that I've said that I wish I could unsay, but I can't reach out and pluck the words out of the air. There's mistakes, and now, guess what? We're stuck with them. We're living with the reality of them, and they are foes that we cannot vanquish. And now we must learn how to have victory over that which we cannot vanquish. I want to preach to you on that thought this morning. Victory without vanquish. And before I get into the message, let me make a bold statement. I want you to hear me clearly. When I'm talking about our foes and the difficulty and these these foes that we cannot vanquish, I'm not talking about actively engaging in sin in our life. See, the fact is, Joshua did not allow them to have station and status with the Israelites. He did not exalt them and promote them because to do so would have been to continue thumbing his nose at God. But he's living with the consequences of the mistake that he's made. And I want to be clear in what I say this morning. There's no sin in your life that you can't get victory over. There's no sin in your life that God won't help you to have victory over. And I'm certainly not being an apologist for loose living this morning. I'm not suggesting that we just have sins that we live with because God can't give us victory over them. God can certainly give us victory over them. But what Joshua is contending with is not the sin itself, but the ramifications of the sin. And I will say that oftentimes things that we've done in our life, we confess it to God, we ask His forgiveness, we no longer engage in it. But the effect of it, the results of it, the impact of it is still very much felt in our life, the guilt, the shame, the consequences of what we've done. And we have to learn not just how to deal with our sin, but also how to deal with the consequences of our sin. We must decide what we're going to do with them in our life. And here Joshua teaches us how we are to have victory without vanquish, how we are to treat the ramifications of our sin after we've gotten the matter right. With God, I want you to notice three thoughts and I'll be done this morning. Look with me at verse number 22. Joshua declares to the Gibeonites what their life will be like going forward. And it's really not a pleasant declaration. I guess it's better than liars and thieves deserve, certainly. But listen to what he says in verse 22. Joshua called for them and he spake unto them, saying, 
Wherefore have ye beguiled us, saying we are very far from you when ye dwell among us? Now therefore ye are cursed, and there shall none of you be freed from being bondmen, and hewers of wood, and drawers of water for the house of my God. I want you to notice the position of the Gibeonites. What Joshua do with them? What place were they given in public life? What station were they given? And what plight in life were they allowed? Because this informs us as to what we are to do with the guilt and the shame we feel over sins we've committed that we've already addressed with the Lord. Now I want you to notice three things that he says here. Notice number one, their appraisal. He recounts to them again what their crime is. And he doesn't soften the matter. He doesn't say anything of their fear. He doesn't say anything of their danger. Here's what he says in verse 22. Ye have beguiled us. Wherefore have ye beguiled us? He says, you lied to us. You deceived us. You tricked us. You ensnared us. And then he says this in verse 23. Now therefore ye are cursed. In other words, there was no debate concerning what kind of people these Gibeonites were. Joshua didn't say, well, you know, after a little time with them, they're really not all that bad of characters. And he understood this intrinsically, that in generations to come, if he did not make a difference between the Gibeonites and the Israelites, it wouldn't be long and the Israelites would begin to view the Gibeonites as Israelites. So we have here his appraisal. He labels them. He says, I don't want anyone ever forgetting what kind of people you are. I don't want them ever forgetting what you've done to us. I don't want them ever trusting you again. I don't want them ever falling for your lies. I want it stated very clearly that you are a cursed people and that trusting you will only lead to heartache in their communities. Can I say this? One of the first steps as we cope with the guilt and the shame of our sin is to not try to whitewash or paper over or soften the reality of the mistakes that we've made. We live in a society today that is very focused on the idea of self-love and self-care. The idea of exalting your self-esteem and somehow going back and through revisionist history and, and willful uh, uh, deception trying to repaint and recast the mistakes that we've made. And I think that's a very unhealthy activity because the reality is the moment you forget how bad what you did was is the moment you'll do it again. We have to be honest with ourselves about what it was. We have to be honest about the sins we've committed, the lives that they've destroyed, the effects that they've had. Joshua could have very easily said, well, let's just forget this ever happened. You'll be Israelites now. That's no problem. We'll just forget that this whole ugly business ever, ever took place. But the problem was the Gibeonites weren't going to quit being Gibeonites just because you labeled them Israelites. They wouldn't quit being pagan, though they were integrated in. They wouldn't quit being dishonest, though they were treated with trust and with dependence. And the fact is, your sins are not going to be any better just because you try to redefine sin and what it is. We live in a society that has redefined every sin possible as a civil liberty. Every iniquity, every depravity in society is now not only a person's right, but it is something that they boast in. Has that made our world better? Has it made it healthier, more wholesome, more safe, more clean? Hey, listen, you can try to call dirt clean all you want, but that won't clean the dirt away. 
in our society and in our lives personally, we have to appraise those mistakes for what they are. You don't have to walk around pretending like you haven't made mistakes. You don't have to walk around pretending like those mistakes didn't hurt people. In fact, it's probably good that you remember that they did hurt people and that the next sin that you commit will likewise hurt people. I see their appraisal. Notice verse 23. I like this. The Bible says, There shall none of you be freed from being bondmen. I see not only their appraisal, I see their arrest. Joshua said, You can't roam around free because we don't trust you. We don't know what you might do. We've got to get you under control before you take control. And I say in our life, not only regarding the sins we've committed, but even regarding the guilt and the shame we feel over sins that have already long past been dealt with, we better get that thing under control or it will grow to control us. The sin that you have in your life already has control of you. To say otherwise is to deny God's Word and to be willfully disillusioned, to, be, to, to, to deceive yourself. But certainly even the guilt and the shame that we have in our lives, we're either going to deal with it from a biblical perspective or we're going to allow it to dominate and to master us. And here's what Joshua understood. He could not leave these people to roam about because if he did, they would cause trouble. They would deceive people. They would take advantage of people. He said this, if we're going to keep them around, we better keep them under control. And in your life, you'll never keep sin under control. But can I say this? You can master the guilt and the shame over things that you've done in your past. And you better deliberately do it, or else it will master you. I see their arrest in verse 23, and listen to what he tasks them as. This is important. He says this, There shall none of you be freed from being bondmen. You'll be slaves the rest of your lives, and hewers of wood, and drawers of water for the house of my God. It's interesting when you study just how much upkeep and maintenance and investment that, that the, the tabernacle at this time and the temple later on required. I mean, you think about even the, the altar, the brazen altar, the continual burnt offering itself. Any of you that have ever had a wood stove or burned wood in a fireplace, use wood as fuel to heat through winter, you know that it is almost impossible to overestimate the amount of wood that you need. I remember when I was young, my granddaddy, he didn't have central heat and air till the last few years of his life. And one of the things we would often do to help him is go and we'd split wood and put wood up in the woodshed. And I used to always be, be sort of chagrined, a little annoyed, because we'd have that thing stacked full. And I'd say, Daddy, is that enough? He'd say, no, it's not enough. And I was thinking, how could it not be enough? We got half the woods in this woodshed. How could it not be enough? But listen, come January, come February... We'd go out to the smokehouse and we'd pass that woodshed and all of a sudden we'd see, man, I mean, that, that, that supply was dwindling. Oftentimes, that's what people did. In old times, they couldn't farm during winter. What'd they do? They cut wood and hunted and that was all they did. And that took all the time they had to try to survive. You think about just the burnt offering, the continual burnt offering, the amount of wood that it would have taken. And that's not even mentioning all the other myriad of sacrifices that would be given. And not only that, the Bible describes how that all of the utensils had to be purified, had to be washed, and the sacrifice would have to be washed. It took an immense amount of wood and water for the tabernacle to run. Here's what Joshua says. He says, we could throw you in jail and let you lay around and be lazy and watch HBO on the television. or We could put you to work and get something out of our investment in you. Can I say this? Your guilt and shame can either be an albatross around your neck or it can be a conduit, an avenue to God doing great things in your life. 
I like what he did here. I see their assignment. And he says this, if you're going to be a part of our lives, we might as well put you to work serving the Lord. Listen, your guilt and your shame, it's not going to go away. You can try to pretend. You can try to redefine. You can try to rewrite the things that you've done in your life. And that's not going to work. It's still going to be there. And if you're going to be a biblically honest individual, then you won't be able to whitewash the things that you've done. You say, well, preacher, what can I do with all this? Well, you can put it to work for God and let God use it in your heart and in your life. Every mistake you've ever made is a means of God both humbling you and teaching you. Every bit of guilt that you feel in your life is an avenue for God to teach you something about Calvary and the depth and the preciousness of it. Every single mistake that you've made in your life is a, is a means for God to use you as an example and as a voice of experience in the life of another person. You can let your guilt and your shame, you can let the things that you can't change and can't get rid of cripple you and define you and paralyze you, or you can let God use those things for His glory and for His honor. Joshua decides that they're going to put them to work. And so they become hewers of wood and drawers of water. I see the position of the Gibeonites. And it reminds me of what we must do with the guilt and shame we feel over our mistakes. But then I want you to consider with me the pitfalls of the Gibeonites. This was not a zero-sum offer. This was not all looking up for Joshua and the Israelites. In fact, bringing this uh, alien group of people into their congregation and allowing them to dwell amongst them, actually, it, it, it provoked and provided a lot of dangerous opportunities for things to go sideways. It's interesting when you study the Bible and study places in the Bible. I love to study places in the Bible. There are certain places that just keep popping up in the Bible over and over and over again. And did you know that Gibeah or Gibeon, they are one and the same place. Gibeah was the region and Gibeon was the city. You'll find that, that Gibeon seems to pop up over and over and over again in the Bible. The very next place that it shows up is actually in the book of Judges. The Bible tells us about a, a wayward Levite who has a concubine who runs away from his house and he, he goes out searching for this concubine and he winds up tracking her all the way to Gibeah. And when he gets to Gibeah, he is detained in this house and kept there. And the Bible describes how the men of Gibeah, who were men of Belial, that's a Bible way of saying they were wicked men, they were scoundrels. These men come and and they want to abuse this Levite who has come to this place. And he, I guess, big, courageous fellow that he is, he's scared to go out and face him. And so he pushes that concubine out the door and throws, I mean, like a like a ribeye steak to a bunch of wolves, throws this poor girl outside. The Bible describes how they abuse her until she's dead and leave her on the doorstep the very next day. Say, preacher, that's not a very nice passage of Scripture. I know I preached on on Mother's Day one year. (laughs) It's not a very nice passage of Scripture. You know, that's in the book of Judges towards the end of it. And here's what God's trying to teach us. Where man gets left unto himself. And that's where man gets. That depraved, that degenerate, that evil, that mean. The Bible describes how that Levite, he wakes up the next day and he sees what's happened and he takes the body of that concubine and cuts it in 12 pieces and sends a piece to each of the tribes of Israel along with a note saying that the men of Gibeah had done this very thing and he rallies the children of Israel against the people of Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin and the people of Gibeah and that's the first civil war that ever happens in the land of Israel. The Bible describes for us in Judges chapter 20, verse 14, the children of Benjamin gathered themselves together out of the cities unto Gibeah to go out to battle against the children of Israel. 
It is a place of deep confusion and deep carnality. So much so that the book of Hosea, here's how God characterizes it. He says, O Israel, thou hast sinned from the days of Gibeah. There they stood. The battle in Gibeah against the children of iniquity did not overtake them. In other words, he points back and he says, You've been a hot mess since Gibeah. Your sin has only gotten worse and worse. Sounds to me like Gibeah was not really a great place. And can I say this? One of the pitfalls of dealing with our guilt and shame in our life often is that we allow it to corrupt us. That's what Israel did. They let the Gibeonites corrupt them, or at least the tribe of Benjamin did. So much so that they were willing to march and to bite and devour and tear apart the nation of Israel. And how many times have you seen people, as they wrongly cope with the mistakes that they've made in their past, instead of coping with it in a biblical perspective, they instead redefine it, live in a fantasy world where their mistakes were not mistakes, and then they lash out and bite and devour and consume anyone that would dare tell them the truth about the choices they've made. Can I tell you, it's better for the Lord, it's better for society, it's better for the church, it's better for you. If you'll just be honest about the sins you've committed. If you'll just call them what they are. Why are you defending that sin? It's not helped you. It's only hurt you. Why would you devour the people of God when they try to tell you truth about them simply because you're so addicted to that sin? The danger is that we allow it to corrupt us. It's not the only place that Gibeah is spoken of in the Bible. It's actually mentioned again when it's time for Israel to pick a king. The Bible describes a man by the name of Saul who would be the first king over Israel. And God permitted him to be the king. God even sanctioned his reign. But we learn from studying the Bible, if, if they had left the choice to God and God alone, Saul wouldn't have been the man that God would have chosen. He would have chosen David to be their king, who was a man, though not perfect, a man after God's own heart. But the people craved a king. And they went to Samuel, who is the prophet over the nation at that time, and said, we want a king to go out before us into battle and to lead us. And by the way, they lost a lot more battles after they had a human king at the head of their army than they ever did when they had a divine king at the head of their army. There's a truth there for our nation. There's a truth there for our churches. There's a truth there for our families. We'd a lot rather have God as the king at the head of our army than a human being. But nevertheless, they coveted a king. And the Bible says in 1 Samuel 9, Verse 1, now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice young man and a goodly. And there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. From his shoulders and upward, he was higher than any of the people. Now, did you notice the Bible speaks of this family, this man named Kish and his son Saul, that they are Benjamites. The Bible tells us over in chapter number 10, verse 1, that Saul becomes the king of Israel. Then Samuel took a vial of oil and poured it upon his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord hath anointed thee to be captain over his inheritance? Verse 24, he says, Samuel said to all the people, See ye him whom the Lord hath chosen, that there is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted and said, God save the king. Listen to this little addendum that's given in verse 26 of 1 Samuel 10. And Saul also went home to Gibeah. You know what you learn when you study your Bible? When it came time to choose a king, they chose a man that was from Gibeah. Now, I want to be very clear. Saul is not a Gibeonite. He is a Benjamite. He is an Israelite. But we learn from the book of Judges that the Gibeonites, nevertheless, that dwelled in the land of Gibeon, they were a thoroughly corrupt people. And Saul grew up around that crowd. You study the life of Saul, 
we find he was a terrible king and a thoroughly carnal man. You see, the fact is, he may have had the credentials to be king, but he didn't have the character to be king because he had grown up amongst a group of people that didn't value the things of God. And now all of a sudden, the values of Gibeon are reigning on the throne in Israel. You know what the danger is about your guilt and shame if you don't deal with it biblically? It's not only that it would corrupt you, but that it would conquer you. That it would become the driving force in your life. I can't tell you the numbers of people who live. And listen, I understand uh, we naturally feel guilt and shame. I, I, I don't think we should apologize. I think it's a, a wholesome thing that we feel shame and guilt over our sin. One of the marks of the end days degeneracy and debasement would be that people would get to a place where they'd forget how to blush. Their sin wouldn't bother them anymore. Your sin should bother you. It should disturb you. It should shame you. You should feel guilt over it. But understand, hey, listen, when we've come to Calvary and ask God, God's forgiveness and put it under the blood, then we have our consciences sprinkled and purged from guilt and shame to go on and to serve the living God. You better deal with that thing because if you don't, it will become the characterizing force in your life. And I've known people out of church today won't come to church. Preacher, why won't you come to church? Well, I've just made too many mistakes. I've just messed up too much. You can tell they ain't been to church in a long time. I tell you, if the last time they was in church, it was filled with people that didn't make no mistakes, I don't know when they was in church. We all make mistakes, man. There's not a person in this room that doesn't have baggage and a history and things that we've done that we're embarrassed about and we're ashamed about. But we've made our mind up that we're not going to let it conquer us. We're going to put that thing in subjection to God and let God use it to draw us closer unto Him. There's a danger, man. There's a danger that it would conquer them. But then there's another passage that deals with Gibeah, and it's about the life of, of Saul. Saul, like we said, was a carnal man. He was a terrible king. To boot at all, he was a coward. You'll find that very often when the battle was enjoined, Saul wasn't anywhere around. Politicians don't like to be around the places that bullets are flying. They don't mind sending the bullets. They don't mind sending the boys. But they rarely want to be where the bullets are flying. And Saul was a king, and he was no different than that. I picked one passage here, but actually there's three or four passages that say almost identical things in the Word of God during the life of Saul. 1 Samuel 13 and 14 details for us one of the great battles between the Philistines and the Israelites. And in fact, this is the battle where Jonathan sneaks down to the front lines and he just flies into them like a hurricane and begins uh, begins laying low Philistines and cutting heads off and, and killing people. And he changes the course of the battle that day because of his courage and because of his dependence upon God. When we read that passage of Scripture, there's a natural question we have to ask. Where was Saul in all this? I mean, Jonathan, his son, is down leading the charge. Jonathan, with nobody but him and his armor bearer, is down there killing Philistines. And and when you read the greater context, there's Israelites that had fled and were hiding in caves. There's Israelites that had defected and had crossed and were fighting for the Philistines. But then the Bible describes another group of Israelites and why they weren't in the battle. And listen to what it says in 1 Samuel 14, 2. And Saul tarried in the uttermost part of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. And the people that were with him were about 600 men. Saul was hiding from the battle. Where was he doing it? He was doing it in Gibeah. That was his home. That was his stomping ground. That was his comfort zone. And he goes back and he lays up under this pomegranate tree. And when he should be down engaged in the battle, he's instead laid up under a tree, cooling it in the shade, and got 600 other men. Hey, two men made the difference in that battle that day. Imagine what 602 could have done. 
but instead he's led them astray, and they're just laying up there idle, doing nothing in the time of battle. I would say this, part of the danger in dealing with our guilt and shame is that it would corrupt us and that it would conquer us, but another problem is that it would cripple us. He's no longer fulfilling the office and responsibility of a king. Instead, he's leaving it all behind, and he's being lazy, and he's being idle, and he's being a coward. And he's doing all this in the land of Gibeah. Can I say, there's a lot of people, their Christian life is laid up under a pomegranate tree in Gibeah. They've allowed their shame to stop them. Their guilt, their embarrassment, the mistakes that they've made have become an albatross around their neck that have prevented them from doing anything for God. And now God wants to use them and God speaks to your heart. But you say, well, God, you can't use me. I've made mistakes before. You ought to read your Bible. Your Bible is full of people that made mistakes worse than you've ever made whom God used to do great things. I see the potential of the Gibeonites and I see the pitfall, or I'm sorry, I see the position of the Gibeonites and and the pitfall of them, but I want you to think with me for a moment about the potential they had. Now, when we read this story, it's hard to say much good about the Gibeonites. And let's be honest, there really was nothing good about them. But here's what we find. Though there was nothing good about the Gibeonites, God did bring good things out of the Gibeonites' presence in Israel. And you know, isn't that just how it is in our life? Listen, God, God's not pleased or proud of our sin. Our sin's a bad thing. God does not delight in our guilt and in our shame. Part of what Calvary did was to deliver us not just from, from the, the, the substance of our sin, but from the shame of our sin. But can I say this? Even though God does not endorse our sin and God does not rejoice in our guilt and our shame, God can use those things for His glory and for His honor. There's two places that Gibeah is mentioned that feature prominently in the Old Testament. I'm just going to read them to you. You don't believe me, but I'm about done. Amen. I know you wouldn't believe me. That's okay. You can laugh. That's all right. In Joshua chapter number 10, now remember, this is the very next chapter. I mean, the ink on this contract is not even dry yet. And immediately, Joshua begins to see the effects, the ramifications of his sin. The Bible describes for us how as soon as the countries round about that area heard that the Gibeonites had made league with the Israelites, they went out and marched against the Gibeonites. This is part of the problem, by the way, in joint military alliances, is sometimes your allies get in you in fights that you wouldn't have got in. Amen? And, and so they all of a the sudden, these armies are marching against the Gibeonites. They're offended that they had betrayed them, that they had crossed over to the other side, so to speak, and made peace with the Israelites. So all that country round about, and it's interesting, man, it shows you, hey, listen, in our lives, we'd be better off to deal with our foes one at a time than allow them to mount against us. Here's what I mean by that. If Joshua had just conquered the Gibeonites, he could have conquered just the Gibeonites at one time. Because he didn't, now all of a sudden he's on the hook against these multitude of armies that have gathered against him. Let me tell you, sin don't take long to get real exponential in your life. Sin begins to multiply real quick in your life. You better deal with it when it's just one. Because it won't be long and it'll be a whole confederacy of sins in your life. So the Gibeonites come running to Joshua and they cash that check real quick. They say, hey... We're under your protection. We're under the shelter of your wings. We're trusting in you. You're our ally. You've made a league with us. And all these armies have marched against us. And now you have to go save us from our enemies. Joshua, because he had made an oath, he does that very thing. 
And he musters the army of Israel and he goes to march against the Amorites, being a generic name for all those peoples in that area that had marched against him. The Bible describes how that God gave him a great victory that day. They defeated the Amorites. They didn't just defeat them, they disgraced them. I mean, they didn't just overcome them, they routed them. And the Amorites begin to flee. Those armies begin to run. And Joshua says, you know, I wouldn't have chose it this way, but it is nice that we're surrounded because now all of our enemies are in one place. And they go out to chase them down and to defeat them. They run into a problem. They start to run out of daylight. There's more enemies than they have time to get to. Did you know one of the greatest miracles in the Word of God is performed because Joshua was fighting on the behalf of and dealing with the ramifications of his covenant with the Gibeonites. The Bible says in Joshua chapter 10, verse 12, Then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stayed until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. The Bible says the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and hasted not to go down about a whole day. I think this is one of the great miracles of God that's often overlooked in the Bible. Not as much time and attention is given to it as, say, the parting of the Red Sea. But, you know, God parted the Red Sea. God parted the River Jordan. God did a number of miraculous things. But you understand here, He literally pauses the universe so that he can deliver them on this day. You know what it's a reminder of to me? Listen, I'm not proud of the things I've done in my life. There's many things I have to rightfully be ashamed of. And I can't erase those things. But can I say this? Some of the greatest miracles God has done in my life have been in helping me to gain victory over those things that I have done. Some of the greatest works in God growing me and cultivating me and developing me and maturing me in my walk with Him. Some of the greatest miracles God has done. God's not pleased or proud of my sin. But let me tell you, some of the deep messes I've got in, God's had to show up in a big way to get me out of. And I've seen God mighty in my life. I wouldn't go and commit the sins again. I wouldn't disgrace the Lord that way. I love Him too much. But I can bless the Lord that He worketh all things together for good. See, the truth is you can look at your mistakes and the guilt and the shame, the things that you've done in your life, and you can see those as a crippling force. You can say, well, God can't do nothing because of these mistakes I've made. Or you can look at them and say, God's going to have to do something because of the things that I've done in my life. And when he does, it'll have to have been God. You can either allow it to be an opportunity for God to work in your heart and in your life to give you victory and to grow you and to use you for his glory or you can allow it to have a paralyzing effect. It's interesting. I'll read to you one more passage. The potential of the Gibeonites is the miracles that God can do. And the potentials in your life, if you'll put these things squarely within God's jurisdiction and deal with it in a Bible way, God can do great things, even through mistakes that you've made in your life. But there's another place that Gibeon is mentioned many times in Scripture, but there was another place that really stuck out to me. Now, after the children of Israel get into the land of Canaan, and after they have predominantly uh, subjugated all those people around there, destroyed them, taken their lands, God gave orders and, and gave a, 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 a recipe for how they were to divide the land. He gave instructions to Moses and then to Joshua of how they were to divide the land. Something interesting if you study in the Bible is that 
when, when you read through Joseph, who was one of the twelve brethren, the sons of Jacob, Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And Ephraim and Manasseh were both because of Joseph delivering the children of Israel uh, or delivering his brethren into Egypt and sparing and saving them. They were both given a full portion of inheritance in the land of Canaan. Now, this presents a problem because now all of a sudden you've got to divide it by 13 instead of dividing it by 12. But, you know, God had already decided what he would do. The Levites having the priesthood would not actually have a portion in the land. The Levites, instead of giving a large portion, geographically speaking, of land, a big chunk of land where the tribe of the Levites would live, because many of them spent much of their time living wherever the tabernacle was and then afterwards wherever the temple was, God had ordered not that they would have a big chunk of land, but that God would actually give them cities throughout the land. And they would live in these cities and teach the people and have a sort of sanitizing effect on the culture of Israel. But here's another reason God gave some of those cities to the Levites, because God made a, a, a provision in the Old Testament for when a man was guilty of manslaughter. Now, you understand the distinction between manslaughter and murder, murder being willful and intentional, and manslaughter at least predominantly being something that's inadvertent. In other words, if a person made a mistake, one of the examples our preacher on Saturday spoke, he referenced it, would be, for instance, if a man was out in the wilderness and was felling a tree with an axe and the axe head flew off of that axe and struck his neighbor in the head, hit the person that was helping him in the head so that he died. What would God do with people like that? In other words, people that messed up, people that made mistakes, people that had baggage in their life, The Bible tells us exactly what he would do. God made these places and they were called cities of refuge. The Bible describes how that that person that had unwittingly and, and unintentionally slain someone in order to flee from the vengeance of the family, they could run to the cities of refuge and they would be given refuge there and protection there and it was unlawful to take vengeance upon them in that place until the high priest had died and a new high priest was appointed. And so these cities of refuge were peppered throughout the land of Israel. Joshua chapter 21 gives us a big long list of different cities that might be used for that purpose. And giving this list, it says this in Joshua 21, 13, Thus they gave to the children of Aaron the priest Hebron with her suburbs to be a city of refuge for the slayer and Libna with her suburbs. And it goes on, it lists a bunch of cities. And down in verse 17, it says this, And out of the tribe of Benjamin, Gibeon with her suburbs. In words, Gibeon would be one of these cities of refuge where if a person had messed up, where if a person had, had done something wrong that had taken a life, that had destroyed the lives of others, but they did not intend to do it, they could flee to this place. And you know what they'd find? They'd find a bunch of people there who had messed up too, And they'd find peace and protection in that place. Man, what a picture it is, you know, in our lives. And again, I don't think God's pleased or proud of our sin. But can I tell you, one of the potentials of what God can do it is not just the miracles that God can do, but the mercy that God can dispense. Let me tell you why you don't want to go to church with Pharisees. They can't help you. They don't believe they've ever done anything wrong. And they can't help you. And if you come broken and in pieces and ashamed and filled with guilt, they're just going to stare at you and wonder why you're so messed up. I can tell you one of the great things about going to church with a bunch of Gibeonites 
is you come into this place and you're surrounded by people that are just low down, rotten, no good, full of mistakes and shame and guilt and baggage. And they've done things. I've often laughed to myself because I know people that aren't in church very often. They come into the house of God. They come into a place like this. And you look around and everybody looks pretty good. Understand, it took six days for us all to get ourselves looking like this. And they look around and, and they, they, they see a bunch of church people. You know, they say sweet little old ladies, look like dandelions, snow white hair, and they see, they see fellas in their suits and their ties, and they see beautiful young families with their kids all, you know, in dresses and suits and bows in their hair, and, and, and the part, and they look at them and they think, that's who these people are. Well, listen, by the grace of God, that's who we are. Because if you'd seen us before grace showed up, if you'd seen what we were, and if you'd seen what we could still be, and if you could even see us as God sees us and knows us, You'd understand, we're just a bunch of Gibeonites. We're just a bunch of liars and thieves. We're just a bunch of scoundrels and no goods and nothings. Amen. When you see people like that and you're that type of person, what mercy God can give and pour into your life. I'll tell you this, man, there's things that before I'd made the mistakes I've made in my life, I would have turned my nose up at. But there's things that after the mistakes that I've made in my life, instead I just turn my prayers to the Lord for people. Because I know how easy it is to go down that path and how easy it is to get messed up. See, here's the question. You've got Gibeonites in your life. Sins that you've committed, they're mistakes as well as being sins. Things that you've done in your life and you can't undo them. You can try to ignore them. You can try to whitewash them, but it won't change what they are. And you can either ignore them and allow them to consume you or you can bring those things to the Lord and ask Him to use them for His glory. I think the greatest thing you can do, you say, preacher, I can't vanquish them. I can't make them vanish. I know, but you can still have victory over them today. Won't you let God use them for his glory and for his honor? Let's bow together this morning. A musician's going to come play, but you don't have to wait for that musician for you to come to the altar. You can come to the altar right now. There might be something you've done in your life, or it may not even be about you. I like what the preacher said on Saturday. He said, nothing has to be wrong for you to go to the altar. You know, that's true. It doesn't mean something's deeply, desperately wrong in your life because you go to an altar. But I'll tell you, if something is deeply, desperately wrong, there's no better place for you to go. This preacher can't fix it, and I can't help it, and I can't change it, but there's a God that can. So why don't you come down and just be honest with Him? Just talk to Him, share your heart with Him, be truthful with Him, and allow Him to speak to your heart. And if there's some matter He's addressed in your life, why don't you bring it to Him in obedience today? Father, bless this invitation. May it glorify the Lord Jesus, we ask it in His name.